Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. You know that, that when you understand that, that Jesus said that we would be taught by God when you have that perspective, um, it changes the way a lot of things that we see and hear and even receive things in life. And Jesus said all the time, be careful how you hear. And more than he said to be careful what you say, he said be careful how you hear. Because I think he was knowing there's always going to be voices speaking. And a lot of times you can't control the voices around you, what they're saying, um, circumstances, things that you're going through. There, life is always speaking. And so while it is good for us to control what we say, um, Jesus was really more, more focused on our heart. You know, He said that it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, so he didn't really talk a whole lot about what we say. But he did talk a lot about be careful how you hear. Because if you hear things through the filter of God is my father and he wants to father me, he wants to teach me, then even things that sometimes could be hard to hear or could be corrective things. And, you know, sometimes we don't want to hear those things. But if we have that attitude of I'm going to be taught by God, then we understand we're being fathered by him in those moments. And we can even be thankful in the midst of correction. We can find ourselves being corrected and thanking him, not because there was something wrong that needed to be corrected, that stinks, but that he loves us enough that he didn't want to leave us there, that he didn't want us to walk around with that in our hearts or in our lives because he knows that the fruit of that is not what he intended for our lives. And so when we find ourselves being corrected by him even, if we're thanking, God, I thank you that, that you're going to teach me, God, that you want to father me, all of a sudden we can take a posture before him of saying, God, I'm so thankful that you love me enough to father me. God, you said those whom you love, you discipline. And I thank you for that, Father. Your discipline isn't a scary thing. It's actually something that I'm thankful for. I thank you, God, that you're doing this to keep me from something that you don't want, not to keep me from something that I want that's good. God, you've never had anything but my best in mind. And all of a sudden, that correction is absorbed, it's received, we see it for what it is, and we're better for it. And we walk away from it even more thankful, and we actually start to crave that. We start to look for that. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, you know, and and all, what he's saying is, surround yourself with people that love you enough that they'll say things to you that sting in the moment because they're actually bringing life to you in the long term. Find people like that. And when, you, when we have that heart, it, it, we're open to it. We want to receive it. And if you seek, you'll find. So if you're looking to be fathered by him, you'll find a father who wants to father you. That's a promise from him. So um, today is, is Memorial Day. We, we celebrate those um, who paid the sacrifice so that we could be here. We live, I believe, in the most amazing country on earth. You could have been born anywhere at any time, and God chose to place you on this earth, in this place, at this time. And what an amazing privilege it is, and it came at the cost and the sacrifice of so many lives. So let's just pray, and just thank God for the gift of freedom that we have, and for the people who have paid the price for us to have that, for their families and their children, their loved ones. Because even today, there's people who are giving their lives so that we can live in this freedom and do this. And they, they willingly go on our behalf into battle. They willingly go on, on our behalf into dangerous places. And they go and they serve and they lay their lives down. And some of them actually lay their life down to the point of death. And the Bible says, greater love has not a man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. 
And even though they don't know you, they thought you were worth laying their light. They thought your freedom. Isn't that crazy? That, that, like, that they could actually have the, such the heart of God inside of them because they're created in his image and in his likeness that they have a desire in them to go and lay their lives down for the freedom of other people just like Jesus did for us. It's pretty amazing and humbling. So God, we thank you for that. God, we ask today, every day, but, but today especially, that you would be with the families of those who have laid down their lives. God, with their wives and their husbands and their, their children and their parents. God, we ask that their sacrifice would never be in vain, God, that we would never take the freedom that we live in in this country for granted. But God, more importantly than that, we would take that freedom and we would actually live in and enjoy that freedom while living in and enjoying the freedom that we found in your son, Jesus. I thank you for that. We ask that you strengthen all those who are mourning. We ask that you strengthen all those who grieve. God, that you would comfort them, that your spirit would be the comforter Jesus said he was. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want to say before we get started, if you want to open your Bibles up uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, verse um, 4, um, how proud I am of our church family in, in this past week and watching just the way that everybody responded to what happened and the way that everybody came together and prayed and loved and worshiped. And, and I just want to tell you guys that like what we say we believe in the easy time is proved out by the way that we live in the hard times. That we have an, a unique opportunity right now to live out what we believe in front of so many people. It's not easy. It's not fun at times. It hurts. Man, I didn't know that I could hurt that deeply, honestly. I really didn't. I had no idea that I could hurt so deep. Like when people talk about the pain they're going through, you always think it's like, you know, mental pain of loss or something like that. You don't, I didn't realize that it meant actually like physical pain. But on the same hand, I've never ever seen so many people steadfast on the gospel with eyes fixed on Jesus saying, this changes nothing that I believe. In fact, it makes me even more thankful for what I believe. Because if it wasn't for the blood of his son, this is a total loss. But because he came, because he died, and because he rose again, we have an eternal promise that's greater than what we've seen. And man, is it amazing to see that. It is. Um, but 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to talk a little bit about stuff today, because I think it's really important. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you've grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, Listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will rule over them. God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that it's alive, that it brings life. Spirit, ask that you would just breathe on these words. That they would come alive to us. I thank you, God, that we have the mind of Christ, that we can understand what you have to say to us. That our hearts are good soil, that, that they receive the seed of your word, that it goes in and it puts out roots, God, and, and it begins to grow, and that tree of life inside of us produces fruit that a world that doesn't know you would taste and see your goodness through the fruit of our lives that you produce. 
And we thank you for that, Father. We ask that as we hear these words today, that they would even sharpen us and change us more and more into the image of Jesus. God, that, that we would look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday as you transform us from glory to glory. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the people wanted a king. They come to God and the, uh, of Samuel and they say to him, you know, you've grown old. Your sons don't walk in, in the ways of God like you do. You know, a little flattery in there to butter him up a little bit because they're going to ask something of him. A lot of times you'll notice that people will come to you and they have these amazing things to say to you. And, there's, and then there's a request behind it. All that was was flattery to get you into a place to receive their request. Be careful right? It wasn't true honor. They had a purpose behind it. Honor, honor is just to, for honor's sake, but, but flattery has an agenda. It's wicked. So they come to him, they say, you know, basically, you're a good man, and, and, and if it was going to be you forever, well, of course we wouldn't need a king, but your sons don't walk in the way of the Lord, and so we were thinking, and we thought that maybe you could give us a king Appoint a king to rule and reign over us like all the other people. And it says it displeased Samuel and he sought the Lord. When did God ever ask the people to decide how they would be ruled over? When did God ever say, hey guys, I want you to set up a committee and I'd love for you guys to, to take an example from all the people around you. The people whom I have told you are not my people. The people whom I have told you you're to be separate from. The people who serve other gods, who follow pagan gods, mute gods. The people, who, some of them whom I've given you victory over and given you their land. I would love for you guys to go out and observe them and find out how they're ruled and then come back and give me a report and, and then we'll figure something out. He never asked them to do that. From the time he took them out of Egypt, he never asked their, their, their consensus, he never asked their consideration, and he never asked their vote when it came to giving them a leader. They always had leaders. They always had a shepherd over them. They always had a prophet that heard from God and spoke to them on God's behalf. They always had a leader. And yet now all of a sudden, they want what everybody else has. And so they come to Samuel and they say to him, give us a king like all the other nations. And it grieves Samuel, and he goes to God, and God says, listen, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. It's what they do. It's what they've done ever since I've brought them out of Egypt. They've turned away from me, and they're serving something else. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, they have forgot my goodness. Oh, they remember it at times. Right? So when, when they're slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh rules over them with an iron fist and a whip and he forces them into slavery and they work hard and their sons and daughters are taken from them and, and they're beaten and they're treated cruelly and all they do is work all day long building someone else's kingdom. Well then, you know, anything sounds better than that. So when Jehovah comes along, he says, I am, I am that I am. He comes along and he says, I'm going to take you out of here and I'm going to bring you into a land that I'll show you, a promised land. That sounds great. Sign us up. But they barely get into the desert and they start looking back longingly at Egypt. Why? They forgot the goodness of the One who called them. 
They forgot how good he was. All he wanted them to do was understand his goodness. It's why he called them out and had the Egyptians chase them down and give them all their jewelry. What's he trying to say? I'll always provide for you even at the sake of your enemies if you just trust me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm that good. I'll bring you out and I will be a a cloud over you during the day so you're not scorched by the sun and I'll be a fire before you at night. What does a fire do at night? Well, as you see, it keeps you warm and it keeps snakes and scorpions and the other things that were in the desert at bay. He said, that's who I'll be for you. Why? I want you to know I'm good. And you don't have to worry about eating. I'll give you food every day. Every day, it'll drop out of the sky. And, 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 and the food that I give you, you can't even store up and save for tomorrow because I don't want you to work and depend on your own hands and the work of your own hands. I just want you every day to see my goodness, receive my goodness, and trust me and obey me. That's all I want from you. Sounds so simple. They get a little while into the desert and they start to look back longingly on Egypt. And that which was absolute tyranny and evil and a model of evil in the earth, they begin to look at and say, it was better there when they have Him in front of them. Why? Because their circumstances began to dictate whether or not He was good. And they let what they had or didn't have determine whether they believed that He was actually good at all. So they, they, they love him and they believe he's good when they have no other option. But then when they, when they get out into the desert far enough and, and they start to remember what it was like, then they say, well, we would really like meat. We've been eating this manna for too long. And this is something we have to be really careful about because sometimes when people ask God for something, and you can see this with his people over and over again, they asked him for a king. He said, it's not good to have a king. Warn them, I still want a king. He gives it to them. They asked him for meat over and over again. Finally, he says, okay, you want meat? Here, here's quail. And he puts so much quail in their camp and they eat it, need it, need it till they become sick and die, a lot of them. How many times has the thing that we demanded from God made us sick and it promised to taste so good? But because we've lost sight of His goodness, we start to think there's something outside of what He's providing for us that we need. And if we could just have that, that would be good enough. And then we get the very thing that we have our mind fixed on and we realize what we thought was going to taste so good actually makes us sick. Is this bright and cheery enough for you guys this morning? <laughs> it gets better. But all this time, all this time, God's trying to teach them I love you, I'm for you, and I'm good. Just trust me and obey me. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when I call you to the edge of an ocean in the middle of a desert. With no trees around for you to make boats. And an army behind you and an ocean in front of you that's impossible for you to cross. Would you just trust that I'm good and I didn't bring you this far to leave you here to die? opens the waters up. They pass through. What's he saying? As he's holding back the waters, they're screaming, I'm good. I'm good. I'm for you. I love you. I'm good. Trust me. They had to trust him. They had to. They had no other choice. Turn around and it's the Egyptians. Stand there, you die. But when he shows you the dry land, 
you have to walk through and you have to trust that that water that's being held up, that his word is actually trustworthy and faithful. And you have to trust that the water that's being held up is being held up for your goodness and it will only be released to destroy the enemy because he's good. And then they get across and he starts to show them how he's going to supernaturally provide for them. And every time manna falls from the sky, what's he declaring? I'm good. I'm for you. I love you. Just trust me and obey me. It says there was not sick among them, not even their animals. What's he saying? I'm good. Their shoes don't wear out. I'm good. The cloud covers the sun from burning them. I'm good. The fire illuminates and brings warmth. I'm good. I'm going to bring you to a place where you can hit a rock and water comes from it. You can speak and things happen. I'm good. That gold that you have in your pockets is only because I'm good. And they take it and they make a bull with it and they worship it and say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. What's he saying? Every time they take their eyes off my goodness, they do something stupid. Every time. Whether it's stuffing themselves so full of quail that their stomachs explode and they die. Making a calf and saying, as for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. Let us now make a a golden calf. Aaron, make us a golden calf. Aaron makes them a golden calf. And they bow down and they worship it as the God who brought them out of Egypt. You realize they worshiped the provision of the one who brought them out of Egypt, but not the one who provided. They worshiped the gift, not the giver. That's what they were doing. They're bowing before something that he gave them as a gift. It says he caused the Egyptians to do this for them. And they worshiped the thing he gave them, gave them more than they worshiped him himself. Then Moses comes down and Aaron says, I don't know, the, the, the people wanted a calf, so. Stupid. But I just. I feel like when when we experience something like we experienced in the past week, there's this temptation for us to do something stupid. Because if we're not careful, we'll allow what we experience in life to shake our belief in the goodness of God. And if we don't have that at the core of our being, that He's good, we will find ourselves at some point sacrificing the praise that we know He's due because of the thing that we happen that we don't understand. Bill Johnson says, we should never, ever, ever give up something we know to be true in order to have an answer for something we don't understand. And if we're not careful, what we don't understand will cause us to take our eyes off of what we do. It'll steal the praise from our lips and we'll forget His goodness We'll do something really, really stupid. And it started back at the beginning. Open your Bibles or turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 3. I love how you can find so much in the first three chapters of Genesis. You want to know his plan for man? Read the first three chapters of Genesis. You want to know what his heart is for man? What his purpose is for man? Why he created man? Read the first three chapters of Genesis. Do you want to know what the enemy's plan is for your life? Read the first three chapters. 
I promise you, so much of the, of the Bible can be found and understood through the first three chapters of Genesis. You want to know his heart even when you blow it? Read the first three chapters of Genesis. And you see his response. Adam and Eve's sin, and what does it say? And God, as was his custom, came and walked in the cool of the day looking for man. Sin didn't change God. He still wanted to be with him. And Adam was hiding. Okay, so Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. Listen to this. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What is he saying to her? He's saying, listen to me. What God said is not to be trusted. And He actually isn't good. Because He's trying to keep something from you. If He was good, He would have told you to eat the fruit. And He knows if you do, you'll get something that, trust me, is worth having. What's He trying to do? He's trying to get Eve, for the first time ever, He's trying to get a human being to question the goodness of God. Because he knows if I can get her to question his nature, his character, and his goodness, I can get her to do just about anything. And so he puts that thought in her head. Wait a minute. God's actually keeping something from you. He's not as good as you think. See, the first thing he does is he comes to her and tempts her with, did God say you couldn't eat any of the tree? What's he saying? First thing he's trying to do. God's pretty stingy. He's pretty greedy. Did he really say you can't eat any of the tree's fruit? What's he trying to do? He's just trying to get a thought present in her mind. She responds with some truth. Oh no, we can eat any of the trees. But the one tree we can't touch or eat. We've talked about this many times. God never said don't touch it. He just said, don't eat of it. We start adding to what God said. We set ourselves up because we put out there a truth for the enemy to destroy, which was no truth at all. And all I believe it took at that point was for Satan himself to reach over and touch the fruit and say, I'm not dead. If God's lying about that, what else might he be lying about? He's trying to keep something from you, Eve. He doesn't want you to be like Him, Eve. Small problem. In the image and the likeness of God, He created them, male and female. They're already like Him as much as they ever wanted to be. Think about Eden. If you want to know God's heart for humanity, look at Eden. He creates man. He puts him in a garden surrounded by goodness. He lets him eat from a tree that every time he eats from it brings life into his body. Man will never die as long as he eats from that tree. He walks and talks with him intimately every day in the coolest part of the day. Man has things to do. He gives him dominion over the earth. He says, subdue the earth. That means there was something for man to do. But he gave him all authority over everything. 
That's his heart for humanity, is to be with his creation intimately and to know him and to speak with him, to be with him, and to see him walk in the things he's prepared for him. And so he puts a tree there that's good and evil, and he puts a tree there that's the tree of life. This one they have to eat from every day. This one they're to never eat from because in the day that they eat from it, they'll actually know something other than good. All you were meant to know is good. You were never supposed to know evil. You were never supposed to be touched by evil. You were never supposed to experience evil because God communicated very clearly to man. Don't eat from that tree. He's not schizophrenic. He's not double-minded. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't say to you, don't eat from the tree, and in the same sentence, command you to eat from the tree and make you like a robot walk over and eat it. If you want to know his heart, read his word. What does his word say? Don't eat it. It's funny how many times we blame God for something he told us very clearly not to do. As if that was the suggestion, but, you know, God really wanted me to do it and because he's God and he's in control of everything. So if I did it, he must have wanted me to as if my disobedience was his desire. If we go down that road, we'll never come back. <laughs> so let me just say that for their message. But, but all he wants to do is get her to doubt the goodness of God because once she doubts the goodness of God, then he can get her to do just about anything. And I promise you this, I promise you, every single time something happens in our life, he is on it trying to convince us that God is not good, that he's not trustworthy, and he's not faithful. And it's bait, and inside of that bait is an absolute life of misery because when you take that bait and you start to doubt whether he's actually good because of something that's happened, what you are saying is for the rest of my life, my circumstances will dictate his goodness. What I'm going through will determine his faithfulness. And whether or not I see what I thought I would see, it determines whether or not he's faithful. And now suddenly God's on trial every single day and the verdict is handed over by life and circumstances. And if we don't have a stake in the ground, if we don't have something at our core of our being that says, He is good, He's faithful, He's for me, not against me, He loves me, He's trustworthy, and He can be praised at all times. If we don't have that deep inside of our hearts during the good times, I promise you it'll be hard to find it there during the hard times. You'll be like a sailor at sea trying to learn how to sail in the midst of a storm. It doesn't work that way. You learn how to sail in the quiet cove and then you prove what was learned on the stormy sea. Our life in the hard times is, proves that we believe what we said in the easy times. And if what we believe in the easy times falls apart in the hard times, we probably didn't believe it in the easy times. And I'm so focused on this. God's been, it, listen, like the reality of how short life is, the reality of how close heaven is, the reality that we have one lifetime to manifest His name. We have one chance to live for the glory of His name. We have one chance to stand in the face of the biggest shot we've ever taken in our life. And rather than feel sorry for ourselves, and rather than become reduced to nothing more than a quivering person who can't function, we stand there with tears in our eyes and grief in our heart, and we look straight 
straight ahead and we say, he's still worth it. He's so worthy. He's so amazing. He's so faithful. He's so trustworthy. And even if I don't see what, I, what he said, even if like Abraham, I have to die believing promises, I'll die believing promises before I'll live in disbelief. I promise you it's burning in me that this life is so short. What is seen is so temporary and what is unseen is so permanent. And that's really what matters, that we keep our eyes fixed on Him. Because what happens in these times we're tempted to do, I've been tempted to do, is we're tempted to lean on our own understanding. See, the Bible says in Proverbs 3.5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So here's what he's saying. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Those things go together. They're not broken up. You know, we put verses and chapters and we break things up. But these things are tied together. What is it saying? If you'll do this, you can do this. If you'll trust in Him with all of your heart and lean not in your own understandings, then in all your ways you can acknowledge Him. What is that saying? It's saying that no matter what, if you trust Him and you keep your eyes fixed on Him, no matter what you go through, you can actually acknowledge Him. That word knowledge in the Hebrew is yada, which means know Him. You can know Him in every circumstance by not leaning on your own understanding, by not demanding to have an answer. Listen, John the Baptist and Lazarus, both Jesus' friends, both of them die. One gets raised from the dead, the other doesn't. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But he's still good. Because he was still the exact representation of the character and nature of the Father, which is what Hebrews says. And he is the exact representation It's what it says. He was still the exact representation of the good father when he raised Lazarus from the dead is when he didn't raise John the Baptist. And I don't know why, but what I can't do is let what I don't understand violate what I clearly do, and that is that he's good. He's for me. He loves me. He has a plan for my life. And so if if we will do this, what does it look like? It looks like this. It looks like God... Right now, there's something going on in my life that I don't understand. But you told me not to lean on my own understanding. So right now, God, I give up my right to understand this and my demand to have an answer. And if you choose to show me someday the why behind this, that's awesome. But if you never do, I'll trust you. Why? Because here's the thing. When I do that and I don't lean on my own understanding and I trust Him with all of my hearts, now I can actually know Him in that circumstance. And I can say, God, there's a way that I can know You through this. I can know Your nature. I can know Your character. Because I know You. I can look to the cross of Jesus and I can say, I know that You love me. I know that You love every single person that's ever lived. I know that You love Carl because while he was yet a sinner, while I was yet a sinner, while you were yet a sinner, You sent Jesus to die on a cross. And you thought Jesus' life spent and his blood shed was worth it for my life gained and my life lived. And I know that you love me. So I'm not going to stop taking my eyes off of you, God. I'm not going to stop looking at you. I'm not going to stop believing the things that I understand for the sake of trying to have an answer for something that I don't. Because to do that, I have to abandon everything I know about you. And I have to leave your goodness. And I have to take my eyes off of Jesus. And I have to abandon everything that the Bible so clearly tells me is true in order to have an answer for something that I don't understand. And I'd rather not do that because I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I'd rather lean on yours. I'd rather trust you than have a demand that I understand this. How many of you guys understand what I'm saying? 
How many of you guys understand that right now, there is no understanding, right? There is no understanding. I do know this. God is good. I do know this, that even, the, even though God doesn't cause everything that happens on earth to happen, we just talked about that, it's so clear. I mean, if you just read the Word, it's so clear that man has a will that God won't violate. Jesus is God who becomes man, and He's so human that in the garden He has to say to the Father, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. What's He saying? There's more than one will that exists in the earth, and man has to bow his knee to the will of the Father in order to do the will of the Father. That's, that's as plain and simple as I can make it. And I promise you, if Jesus, who came from God and was perfect, had to surrender His will to the Father, you, who came from God and are not perfect, who are born the first time in Adam, have to surrender and bow your knee to the will of the Father at some point in your life too. I just I can't be more clear than that. And so if we believe that, that God doesn't cause everything, but we do know that He will cause everything to work for good. And so what are we fixed on? God, I cannot go back in time and change what's happened, but I can live forward and make sure that nothing is wasted. God, I can make sure that every opportunity that's presented to me by people who are hurting and searching, that I have an answer for them, not of the why, but of the who that they should be asking. Because why is an irrelevant question right now. Because what, why, all that why was proved then is that this life really is that short, that life really is a vapor, and that nobody really is promised tomorrow. But I promise you this, you can be promised every tomorrow by the eternal life that Jesus died for people to have. And that's what matters. That's what's important. Listen, every time we pray for something, whether we see it happen or not, because we're praying in faith, it pleases God. Every single time. It doesn't matter if you saw it happen or not. You believed and you prayed in faith. And it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Meaning what? When we act in faith, it does please the Father. And whether you actually see it happen or not. I mean, it was as if God told Bill Johnson what we were going to be going through and to come preach a message to our church on Wednesday night. Because I'm telling you, it was incredible. And one of the things he said, he said, listen to me, every time you prayed in faith, whether you saw it happen or not, it was noted in heaven and it was credited to your account. And because you were faithful with the little, even when you didn't see, you can be made ruler over much. Every single time, every single prayer made in faith is noted and credited to your account. And you've never lost a thing by believing. You've, what have you lost by believing? What have you lost by getting your hopes up? Our hope isn't in what we see anyways. Our hope is in what's eternal, which is eternal is unseen. And so if I, if I do that and I give up my, my right and I say, God, in this moment, I'm choosing to trust You and not my own understanding, God. I'm choosing to trust You and Your goodness and I'm not going to put You on trial and make the life circumstances that I'm dealing with the verdict of whether or not You're good. If we can settle that in our hearts, then we'll live with a different perspective. Because in the moment, even though there's intense pain, it's not, it's not hopeless. It's not despair. It's not those things. Why? Because we have a greater truth that we live from. We trust in His goodness and we trust that even when we can't see it, that it's still there. He's still just as good as He was before that happened. Otherwise, here's our theology. God, we trust You and we love You unless You do something that we don't like. God, we trust You to lead us out of Egypt as long as You don't make us walk through a desert. God, we trust you to feed us as long as you give us what we want to eat. God, we trust you in battle as long as we can count our men. 
God, we trust you as long as we know and we understand why. But the minute we get to a place where we don't understand the why behind something, our trust for you gets shipwrecked and suddenly we begin to lean on our own understanding and we take it upon ourselves to try to figure things out that only you know the answer to. And I just, what I do not want to see is anybody in this family get shipwrecked or get lost or turn their back on the knowledge of His goodness because of something that happened that we don't understand. And we will hurt together and we'll grieve together and we will miss together and that seat's empty and that's real. But there's a greater truth. And that says that there's a seat next to the Father that isn't empty. And the one who swallowed death sits on that seat forever, interceding on our behalf. And it also says this, listen, and I'm just going to talk real personally to our family. It says that the prayers of the saints are gathered like incense in a bowl and they're ever before the Father. That means every single prayer. You know, every day there's alarms going off on the phone of Carl's that they still have that say, pray for Roy, pray for outreach. Every day. Every one of those prayers is still before the Father gathered up like sweet incense. And, he's, and it's still, even after he's gone, it's making intercession on our behalf. And he's, every single one of those prayers, every promise that he had that, that God showed him through dreams and through words that he spoke to him, every one of those promises is just as valid. Even if, like Abraham, he didn't get to see it, it still will happen and we'll see it. And one day when we were reunited in heaven, we'll sit around and we'll tell the stories of the things that happened. And we'll talk about all the things that went on. And we'll see the fingerprints that were left everywhere that we couldn't see. And one day we'll see the string that ties everything together. And it will be our greatest joy, I believe, in heaven will be to see how the Father used us on earth as we see every act of obedience, what it did, and how many lives were impacted. 31 people at the funeral service that we know of went from dead to life. We were praying for one person to be raised from the dead. That didn't happen, but 31 people went from dead to life in that one day. And who knows how many of people didn't stand and were gripping their seats and their heart was pounding and the seed of the gospel is rumbling inside of their hearts right now and it's just pushing against that soil and it's ready to just burst forth into life and the fruit of that will echo for eternity. Or we could just pack it up and go home and turn our backs on the gospel. I can promise you that's not going to happen. I can promise you that's not going to happen. See, here's the thing. Every single thing that happens in your life, the enemy will use it when something bad happens as a way to accuse God to you. And, and, and listen, he can't take a foothold in your life. That's why Paul said don't give him one. But I promise you he will take every one you give him. He can't just take a foothold in your life. He can't force his way in. He can't kick the door open. Jesus said that he opens doors that no man can shut, and he shuts doors that no man can open. And when when your heart is sealed in Christ, the devil has no way that he can force his way in. That's why Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. But I promise you, every single foothold you give him, he will take it. He doesn't miss. And so right now, the, de- the enemy doesn't believe that any of us believe the things that we spoke in the good times. He doesn't believe it. Why? Because he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. It says when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. Meaning what? When he hears you speak, he thinks you're lying too. And he thinks if he can just poke and prod and accuse and frustrate and, and make angry and use people and do anything that he can, why? He just knows that there's some place that he can touch you, that you're vulnerable, that'll make you turn your back on what you said was true when things were good and walk away from God when you need him the most. 
He's convinced of that, and I promise you right now, he's trying his best to do that. And so that's why we just stand on the gospel and we say, God, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. In all my ways, I'm going to know you. In all my ways, I'm going to know you. What does that mean? It means the knowledge of who you are is going to permeate everything I say, think, and do. In all my ways. It's, it's not acknowledged. It's actually that's a bad translation. It's yada. In all your ways, know Him. In everything that you say, know Him. In everything you do, know Him. In everything that you think, know Him. Let His goodness, let His promises, let His trustworthiness, let His faithfulness permeate every single act, every single thing that you do for the rest of your life and give no place to the devil. Give Him no foothold. Because he's a liar from the beginning. And he's the only one who's hopeless. And he would love to reproduce that seed of hopelessness in you. Listen, I'm going to just close up with this. There, there are two voices in this world. There's truth and lies. There's light and darkness. There's godly wisdom. There's earthly wisdom. And every single thing that happens in this world, both of the kingdoms are trying to reproduce themselves inside of you. That's all they want to do. All God wants to do is reproduce Himself inside of you. That's why He wanted to put His seed inside of you so that He could reproduce the seed of the Holy Spirit inside of you so that it would reproduce who God is inside of you. That's all He wants to do. He just wants to make you like Jesus, to become like Him, to transform you into the image of His Son whom He loves. And there's an enemy in the land and all He wants to do is make you like Him. He's bitter. He's angry. He's hopeless. And he wants, you, he wants to get that seed of hopelessness inside of you. That's why he wanted them to eat the fruit. It wasn't even so much about them. It was because he knew if he could get the fruit of sin inside of them, the seed that was inside of that fruit would reproduce inside of them. And then every person that would be born from that day forward would be born into sin. That's why Jesus came and died and gave his life so that you could be born again, not into sin as it was the first Adam, but into righteousness of the second Adam. You had to be born again. Listen, Jesus had to be born again. If anyone could have been fixed from sin, if anybody could have been fixed, it would have been Jesus. He started perfect. He actually was born without sin. That's why he was the seed of a woman. Because the sin of the Father was passed down from generation to generation. He was fathered by the Holy Spirit, which means the righteousness of His Father was passed down from generation to generation. So He was born without sin, totally righteous. He had to actually become sin to take that on. And all He wants you to do is just continue to eat from the tree of life. That's it. Think about it. Man in the garden, fruit hanging on a tree, eat of it. Sin enters the world, corruption, death, all that stuff. Jesus comes. He's the first fruit of many brethren who hangs upon a tree. Galatians tells us, cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. He's called the first fruit of many brethren. And then he said to people, if you eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, you'll never die. What's he saying? He's saying the first Adam took fruit that was hanging upon a tree, and he ate it, and sin entered into his life, and it reproduced that inside of him. And that seed of sin was passed from generation to generation. What is he saying to us? He's saying if you'll eat the fruit that's hanging upon the tree, the second Adam, the last Adam, that seed of righteousness will get inside of you, and it'll start to reproduce, and that'll be what you pass down. It says righteousness is passed down for a thousand generations. 
The sins of the father are passed down to three and four generations. But it says, but, the sin of, but righteousness is passed down for a thousand generations to those that love him. What's he saying? Put way more faith in what the second Adam did than what the first Adam did. If you believe that you can't live this way, if you believe that you can't live the life that he's called you to live, then you have more faith in the disobedience of the first Adam than you do in the obedience of the second Adam. I promise you. You can live this way. You can live with your eyes fixed on Him. You can live with an eternal perspective that says, man, I hate that this happened, but I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus because before I know it, it'll be me. And then we'll all be together for eternity. And what matters is not that, uh, that what happens in the here and now. That's why Jesus was standing when they were stoning Stephen. Because Stephen's looking at people that want to kill him and all he can think is, I want to be with them forever. That's eternal perspective. Loving his own life, not unto death. Because he's looking at people with stones in their hands and murder in their eyes. And he says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. What's he saying? Right now, all I care about is them for eternity. I want to be with them for eternity. The very people who are going to kill me with those stones, I want to be with them forever. Father, don't hold this against them. That's an eternal perspective that says, my life is not the most important thing. Their life is. Because my life doesn't even belong to me anymore. It's not theirs to take. I'll willingly lay it down. I'll willingly lay it down to see others take theirs up. That's the perspective that we can live with. We will live with. I just want to let us let this be just a defining moment in the history of our church family that says it was a recalibration of what was really important and we lived with a fervency that we'd never lived with before. We lived with a determination and an intensity. I'm telling you right now, listen, he was, he was not perfect, right? He was a man. He, he made mistakes. He did things wrong. Ask Kristen. But I'll say this. I don't know very many people that you could say this about. If you would have told him two years ago he only had two years to live and he knew how long he had to live, he wouldn't have lived his life any differently. He lived with an intensity and an urgency to see everyone around him, everyone around him, know that Jesus is Lord. And that Jesus is amazing. I promise you, we can live with that intensity. We can live with that same fervency. Because here's the truth. Every one of us is dying. Every one of us. You'll be at mine or I'll be at yours. But every one of us is headed to a funeral and then to a wedding. And the only thing that matters is how many people get taken along with us by hearing and seeing the gospel lived out in our lives. So, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that right now we even believe further and deeper than we ever have before, God, that this thing that was meant to shake us to our core has actually exposed what's already in our core, which is this. We love you and we trust you, Father, and we know that you're good. And even when the voice of the accuser comes, even when the enemy comes and tries to come in like a flood, it says that you would raise up a standard against him, God. And that standard is Jesus. That standard is Jesus hanging on a cross and our eyes fixed on Him and saying, I could never doubt His love for me or His goodness because I've seen His Son nailed to a cross for my sake while I was still a sinner. What more could He ever do to prove that He loved me? What more could He ever do to prove that He's good? What more would I ever need than eternal life with Him to know Him? So God, right now, in all, we, we trust not in ourselves, God, but we trust you with all of our hearts. God, even the things we don't understand, we trust you with them. 
God, I just ask, hold, just hold out your hands. God, I ask that you would come right now, Holy Spirit, and take from us the things that we don't understand. We surrender them over to you, God. We open our hands and we say, all of it is yours, God. The things we know and the things we don't, we surrender it all over to you, Father, trusting that you'll place everything back into our lives that we need, Father, when we need it. And I just ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and take every single care as we cast them upon you. I thank you, God, that we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That in every circumstance we can know you in all of our ways god we know you we know you're good we know you're kind we know you're long-suffering that you're gentle and patient rich in love and full of mercy desiring that none would perish but that all would have eternal life god we fix that inside of us like a stake in the ground that's immovable we keep our eyes fixed on you and we trust god that if we do that and when we do that, that You'll make this crooked path straight. God, there's no promise that our path would never take a turn, but there is a promise that You would make it straight. God, that even when our, our, our lives take the hardest turn that we never saw coming, there's a promise that if we'll do this, You'll make that path straight. That You'll bring purpose from it and beauty from ashes. And that You'll use it for Your glorious name's sake. God, we have one life to live to make Your name known in this earth. We get the privilege of being called by Your name. We get the privilege of representing what You're like and who You are. We get the privilege of displaying the kingdom of God everywhere that we go. And we thank You for that privilege as long as we have breath on this earth. In Jesus' name, Amen.